0: Hi, and welcome back to The Notch Showcast, the podcast all about real-time visual design. For season two, we've got a brilliant lineup of creators from all around the world, ready to share their creative process with you. We've recorded most of season two remotely due to the coronavirus pandemic. However, within this episode, there are some clips from the live show recorded a couple of months back. I hope that everyone listening is staying safe, keeping positive and using this time for a bit of R&R and a bit of R&D. We kick off season two in style with guest Finn Ross, creative director of multi-award winning studio Frey. Finn has almost two decades of specialist experience in live show design and has won Tony Oliver and Drama Desk Awards for his previous work. Today we discuss his most recent project, Back to the Future the Musical. Designed for the Manchester Opera House, Frey brings 1.21 gigawatts of energy to the musical interpretation of this cult classic film. Join us as we discuss doing it for the audience, The Opinion Matrix, and how to perform a graceful dismount. I'm Kat Kemsley, and you're listening to Season 2 of The Notch Showcast. Hi, Finn. Welcome to Showcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, so firstly, I'd like to say thanks for getting me over to see the preview of Back to the Future, the musical. No word of a lie, it was hands down the most electrifying show I've ever seen on stage. Um, you guys are masters of time travel. We try. And um, I'm going to try my best to communicate the looks that you designed for the show. But there are so many elements that make up this, this set, this production. Um, do you have any idea of how many pieces of video actually went into the finished show?
1: Um, No, <laughs> I do not.
0: <laughs> it's got to be double or triple digits though, right?
1: There's there's a lot of content in there. It's certainly yeah. uh, filling up a GX2 nicely.
0: Amazing. And um, before we get into it, I'd like to address the elephant in the room, which has affected all theatre and live event spaces in the UK. Um, the current... Pandemic crisis has affected many people's health and livelihood, and it's a really turbulent period for those in the arts. But I do feel like art can flourish in these restricted circumstances in this kind of environment, and I believe that artists and producers can use this downtime to reflect on what a fucking great job they've been doing, regardless of whether or not the most recent project reached completion. Um. When you have a positive mindset and approach, you'll be able to spread that positivity in ways that support the community and the arts. Um, So, Finn, I know that your studio has been using your available resources as a force for good. Could you tell me a bit more about Folding at Home and how it works?
1: Yeah, uh, Folding at Home is basically effectively creating a supercomputer across the world uh, via the internet so you can donate your excess uh, gpu and cpu power um, to uh, what's effectively like a community grid um, and it's like a a massive distributed processing project that sort of is largely run by an originated out of Stanford university in the U S uh, you download a piece of software onto your computer and it can use your CPU and uh, depending on what kind of GPU you have to uh, crunch scientific data for sequencing um, genomes viruses all sorts of stuff that's completely beyond my understanding but requires you know large data sets to be computed and modeled into things that scientists can use to cure cancer coronavirus aids alzheimer's parkinson's all that kind of stuff um and we've done that quite a lot in the past but now it sort of seems even more relevant so uh you know, we have every computer in the studio that's not currently rendering something running at full tilt, probably racking up an enormous electricity bill. But at the same time, it sort of feels like if that's the one thing that we can do, uh, then it feels like a good thing to be doing um, because uh, various science teams who are working on Cure for Corona are using Folding at Home to uh, process their data.
0: Anyone listening who would like to find out more about Folding at Home, they can go to foldingathome.org forward slash start folding. So Finn, before we get into Back to the Future the Musical, let's go back to the past. How did you end up in this exciting but relatively niche profession of designing video for live theatre
1: shows? own um kind of misadventure and not really being able to do anything else um uh it's it's a good question i i came down to london kind of wide-eyed and very kind of precocious when i was 18 convinced i was going to sort of change the world with theater and i was going to study to be a director and sort of very quickly realized i didn't really like doing that so much and you know, left drama school, worked as a production electrician, which many people who know me now think is hilarious, um, and did a lot of sort of lighting programming and video programming. So it started to cross over because of, um, in the sort of older days, servers like Catalyst and Hippo uh, were very DMX controlled was the best way to get anything out of them. So, you know, if you could use a hog, you could make video come out of it because uh, it was just like a big moving light. So that kind of was my kind of gateway drug into video was just sort of having a relevant skill set. Um, and, you know, that led me to working with a group of people uh, who I'm still very good friends with called Mesma, who are sort of a collective of video designers, and they were very much at the forefront um, of making Video design recognized as a field in its own right, as opposed to someone who was subservient to a lighting designer or a set designer, but actually another designer with a seat at the table with your own opinions, your own views, your own department. And, you know, Dick Straker and Sven Ortel of Mesma, I think were very influential in finding uh, the video designer as we do now. So it was a great kind of starting point working with them and, you know, I assisted them on loads of shows and then eventually kind of started to make my own work, um, which kind of led me sort of, you know, to where I am now after many years of trial and error.
0: And when you started producing video, what kind of video were you producing? Did you go straight into animation or were you kind of filming live action assets to be integrated into these shows?
1: um sort of a bit of both really i think i've always i I think i was brought up on monty python Uh, that was sort of like the closest thing to religion in my household as a kid and so the work of like terry gilliam that sort of slightly heightened level of magical realism sort of really influenced um i think my approach so it's always been like a little bit of animation and a little bit of filming to kind of key it back into the real world a little bit but at the same time theatricalise and heighten it into something that is, you know, appropriate for use in a theatre storytelling context.
0: You've always had an interest in theatre. Mm. And what was the first kind of theatrical show that you saw that sparked this interest?
1: Ooh, um, that's <laughs> a really good question. Um, I mean, this is going to sound so awful and tacky and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it. But um, the first like big theatre experience I can really remember was probably... Starlight Express. Um, yeah. <laughs> when I was about 15 or something like that, I think um my parents took us to London for a weekend um one summer or something like that and I think I board for it somewhere and probably demanded to see it and um, luckily my parents acquiesced and I think I was probably the only member of the entire family that actually enjoyed the experience (laughs) but and you know I mean looking back now you kind of know it's not exactly the kind of um, high point of theatre but it's also it was not bad and also kind of where I grew up in the northeast of Scotland there was a a fairly active local theatre thing um, that kind of put on a load of stuff so I definitely went to see a lot of that and then His Majesty's in Aberdeen which my school had uh my school was lucky because it was also the local community center as well as a school so it had a theater an actual theater in it like a small sort of 250 seat proscenium uh so we had an amazing drama department at school so I had a brilliant teacher uh Yvonne Wheeler who very much encouraged us to go and see everything organized trips all that kind of stuff so she was sort of a big influence into the into the theatre world of things.
0: Was it Destiny?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, maybe, oh God, no, I don't know. I think, I mean, what was kind of <laughs> nice was, and um, I suppose I can say this now because I'm far enough away from it, but the drama department in our school was very hidden. So if you wanted to skive off a few classes, it was a very good place <laughs> to go and hide because no one could find you. And... <laughs> She sort of, our teacher, she didn't really mind us being there if we were sort of vaguely doing something productive. So she'd never report us. Um, and I hope she's retired now and not going to get into any trouble for this. Uh, I'm not, like I can imagine, who would be listening. But um, it was more interesting than going to maths, shall we say. Uh, so I think maybe it was destiny or maybe it was, I don't know, a good place to hide.
0: Yeah, a, a, dis- a dislike for maths. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, although weirdly where we find ourselves now in maths is mm, sort of yeah. very important. I do, though I don't really understand any of it.
0: So you founded Frey in 2015 with mm. fellow Central School of Speech and Drama alumni, Adam Young. How did you and Adam meet?
1: Um, Adam, I met Adam when he was actually a student. Um, he's not, he wasn't that far behind me, maybe just uh, five years or something like that. And I'd gone back into Central to teach a workshop about video and um you know uh what was it? surfaces not screens or something like that uh, and adam was there and adam wrote to me after was asking for some work experience and uh, we just had a very natural kind of click together um as collaborators and friends so you know we worked together for sort of a good 10 years or so before we actually kind of founded fray in its um uh in its entity but you know it, it it became time I think to create a place for us to kind of make the work we were doing and our approach to our work sort of official rather than us just sort of scrabbling around in the dark a bit. Um, because I think we realized we were maybe onto something a bit like I, I felt aware that people were enjoying working with us and we were enjoying working with them. And Adam and I enjoyed our collaboration. And there were a few other people like Ash Woodward who uh, now works with us very regularly, and. Um, Others who had sort of joined the sort of snowball, as it were, so it sort of felt like a nice place to kind of to land and yeah since then it's sort of been 's been a fun ride
0: Adam and yourself you've applied your creativity to a variety of mediums, I think medium's the right phrase to call it, but you could say a variety of stage types, um, including theater opera rock um museums, art galleries, as well as creating high-quality, bespoke content for corporate clients. And you mentioned the approach that you have to projects. I'd love to find out a bit more about your kind of general approach to working in such a broad field, really.
1: Well, I think the one thing that we see that kind of binds everything together is we sort of see video as a sort of medium uh for telling a story uh at its sort of most basic thing and sometimes that doesn't have to be you know a kind of shakespearean five acts sort of structure with all that kind of detail and detail it could just be kind of moving from a to c through b and there being a sort of meaningful development of an idea uh so we kind of i think look at every experience as a as a story or a journey for an audience and uh i'd say we have quite a sort of structural approach to things Um And I think also a very collaborative approach within the sort of studio and within our clients as well. So certainly in Adam and I's more earlier theatre days working with companies like Complicite where the emphasis is very heavily on sort of collaborative approach to developing work and all opinion is equal. Um, That's sort of where we began. And, you know, sometimes it's not always perfect because sometimes someone does need to assert a idea in order to get something over the finish line because we can't all sort of, you know, love each other's opinions all the time but um, generally speaking it's sort of a thing founded on like a respect for everyone's ideas.
0: Nice and do you think part of that philosophy was built upon having this drama studies background where quite a lot of it is about collaboration and teamwork you know? It's
1: a very and I mean certainly both Adam and I are products of Central School of Speech and Drama which is sort of it's very much emphasising teamwork as part of its uh approach to teaching uh and also their focus is very much on making sure you understand what every other person in the building is doing as well as yourself so you kind of have a knowledge of what the asm on stage is doing or the sound designer is doing or the guy who's dealing with the automation or the director so you kind of know where everyone is in the order of things and then when you uh, make a request of someone you actually have an understanding what it means for them and what a reasonable timeline for that to appear is because you know there's nothing worse than sort of people coming in demanding the world and expecting it to be there in 20 minutes time uh so you know i think that we you know start on a very kind of level playing field in our training and that has kind of i think stayed with us
0: yeah, I think it's really beneficial to have a, quite a broad knowledge base, especially yeah. for that reason, so that you know what you're asking of people and you can manage expectations of, of what is achievable rather than obviously putting on unnecessary stress on someone
1: so much of what you do as a designer is managing people's expectations in order to deliver the right thing at the right time, uh, in the right way. But it's, um, it's a, yeah, it's a tricky balance sometimes, especially the bigger things get the more complicated they get, the more opinions there are to sort of manage and, uh, deal with. So it's sort of, I I we're sort of joking, they refer to it as the opinion matrix that, you know, when you sort of put a big thing up on stage, everyone suddenly has an opinion, you know, from, you know the writer to the director to the set designer to the lighting designer and um you know because as a video designer you sort of sit in the middle of all of those people um you're a bit like okay who am I going to go with now or I mean ultimately what I we usually do is sort of look at what the room is broadly saying and then do our version of that um if that makes sense
0: okay Finn I need you to go back with me
1: back to 1985 (laughs)
0: Uh Back to the Future or the Present. Um, yes. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'll try and I'll try and reduce these down, but it's so much fun. Um, <laughs> so, so today we're discussing your design process for Back to the Future: the Musical. I was lucky enough to see a preview of the show at the Manchester Opera House. This production was put together by the original screenplay writer of Back to the Future trilogy, Bob Gale alongside Hollywood director and co-creator Robert Zemeckis. How is it working with creatives whose background is predominantly in film?
1: Um, It's definitely a little bit different. I think the kind of the understanding of narrative is different. We were in two worlds where there was either something in a film that you could do in five cuts and then you'd be there, but then you're kind of going in terms of theatrical stage time. These are five enormous scene changes, and then there's the detail that's being played out in the middle of it all, and that will equal half an hour of stage time. And then suddenly, you know, looking at it and going, my God, this show is going to be four hours long. There's definitely a sort of understanding of like how to deliver information. And if something could actually be said, in a line within one scene without having to go to a whole other scene to play out the consequence of that. Then, you know, there was that journey to kind of go on or there were moments where they were kind of being nice to us and trying to write it so it would be easier to do in theater, but that was actually sort of sucking the the fun out of it. So there was definitely a lot of, you know, backwards and forwards with myself, uh, Tim Hatley, the set designer, John Rando, the director, and then the sort of writing team of kind of finding its way to being a, a piece of theater that could, fit that filmic story and narrative into a theatrical narrative.
0: We've now got to paint a picture of this show, Finn, um, for those listening at home, and I'm going to try my best. But you know this show back to front, so please jump in at any moment. As I said, there are a lot of elements to this, and a lot of which is really well disguised slash merged into the physical set design that it can kind of almost be missed. Anyway, I'll jump into it. So, When you enter the theatre, you're greeted with an electric blue circuit board um, that frames and protrudes from the four corners of the stage. Um, Can you tell me a bit about the concept behind this?
1: So those are that's like a sort of physical expression of the idea of the, the time circuits. Uh, so, yeah, it's like a massive circuit board that sort of comes from proscenium and launches itself out into the house to sort of, I guess, really envelop the audience within the kind of the idea of the DeLorean time circuits, time travel. So, you know, they behave as electrical circuits sometimes, sometimes. You know, kind of you get sensation of movement through them and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, they have like lights built into them as well as video. So it's like a hybrid lighting and video kind of environment to.
0: It had a really great effects when you walk into the room because it immediately strikes you, and you kind of you know where you are, and you get a feel for what you're about to, yeah. to see. So it was really fun in that sense. It really sets the tone of the rest of the of the rest of the show.
1: And I think that's a really nice trend that's kind of emerging as well. It's like when an audience walks into a theatre, they don't just walk in and see a you know dusty old
0: red curtain. Red curtain. Red curtain. Mm-hmm. They
1: actually walk into a space that is supporting the storytelling and what's going to happen on stage, and you know front of house there was all the mer- stands were themed all the bars were themed all that kind of stuff so you know increasingly i think in theaters now like the experience begins when you buy your ticket and then is further enhanced when you kind of walk through the doors and you're the whole world of this building is the world of the show which you know i think is things like this which are about an experience that everyone has such connection to um it's a really nice reward for the audience member because it just sort of adds value where where it's not difficult to add value for their experience Yeah,
0: and I wonder if some of that's been driven by uh, the rise in more immersive theatre experiences as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably a fairly um, accurate observation that, you know, people want more than just a show. They want an experience, a sort of space to inhabit and uh, something to go and visit almost.
0: So the first scene of the play it's set in the fictional town of Hill Valley outside the town hall it took me a while to clock this but there are definitely there's definitely some video trickery going on with this setup up here am i right
1: a uh, little bits yeah
0: yeah <laughs> so i think so what i clocked so obviously there was a lot, there's a lot going on with all the dancers and the swing performers there's the town hall so that was a real set piece correct but then behind it and the lighting which lit it was that video.
1: So the the lighting that lights the front of the scenery is the lighting, and then behind it is uh, a reasonably large um, three point nine mil uh, row LED wall, uh, which sort of is the upstage for the entire evening. So that kind of that, that is the surface that does a hell of a lot of work kind of all night long. Um, But then, you know, a lot of time is spent between um, myself, Hugh Vanstone, and Tim Luckin, the lighting designers, balancing looks. So we either have, like, an appropriate contrast in color where kind of tonally it's all working together, or, you know, if we're in one blue, we're all in the same blue. And, you know, with things like uh, the row wall and Brompton processing, you can get that sort of incredibly fine, natural, soft color control. Because uh, also in terms of how the town hall is lit and how video relates to it, it later in the show becomes uh, video, albeit unknown to the audience. So it's sort of important we kind of kept that blend.
0: Oh, so the town hall does later turn into, is is later, ah, wow, okay.
1: <laughs> see, see if you can spot where.
0: Yeah, uh, well, it's really, it's really tough. Like, I think also that large LED canvas that you've got, that that's kind of there for the whole show it also communicates the time of day and the weather as well as having more stylistic uses as well
1: uh you know i mean it's really video 101 doing clouds and skies but they're a very natural backing to a piece of naturalistic scenery so we built a series of notch blocks that did uh basically endlessly generated clouds driven by um sort of fractally kind of things and there's some volumetric ones in there as well. And, uh, you know, with a four point color gradient, which allowed us to do kind of, um, you know, the full spectrum of the sky, uh, to match with lighting and, um, you know, things just like speed, density, tint, and all that kind of stuff. So you can always reflect what's going on. And when a scene kind of melts into twilight, you can melt along with it without having to go, Oh, we need to re-render that. Or when the lighting designer decides to, you know, change, a scene because one thing as a video designer i'm always very jealous of is of lighting designs is when a director comes to them and goes oh this isn't really working for me and in half an hour to an hour they can fairly if they're a good lighting designer kind of refresh the look of a number really quite quickly whereas you know in video land we have to go okay well first of all we need to see what lighting design is going to do or we need to do something for them to follow um, but we can't do that because we need to go and render it and then that takes forever and blah 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 whereas you know if we kind of just do these kind of big, broad background looks in a generative world, we can just sort of snap along and we don't have to kind of back up our render queue with things that don't need to be rendered. Things like this are always, when they work well, are a great collaboration between the lighting and a video designer. And when you start to blend in and out of each other's worlds, you can't quite tell what's what is where I always think you're you're heading into a really good place.
0: We've been talking a lot about blending lighting and video and Obviously, having those two marry really well creates a really beautiful unity between the set pieces, the physical stage design and the video design. Um, But with the show, you know, it's so hard to discern the line between what's digital and what's physical. What's the key to creating three-dimensionality in video?
1: And I think the key is foreground, mid-ground, background, but it's choosing what's the foreground, what's the midground, and what's the background. And because not all of it needs to be video, because generally like in in certain scenes in the show, like there'll be a scenic element that maybe is the foreground, but then we model, we light, we tint and colour, so it blends with the real scenery. And then the background is sort of, you know, whatever you're trying to deliver. But because you've kind of got those layers in front of it, you can push it further away. And I mean, the tricky thing as well is to find the appropriate theatrical heightening of it so it doesn't just look like you've spent a load of time doing some fancy 3D modelling as well. It sort of needs to have a theatrical appropriateness to it, albeit maybe in how the colours work or how you know something that isn't just quite real is sort of slightly magical, or it, it then does that. Um, if that makes sense, and you know, I mean, there's certainly shows where you know the people are the foreground, and the lighting and haze is the midground, and then the background is actually the video or something like that. So you, I think, it's about looking at it as a as a composite image of which you are one part of you are not all of uh, and you know that image is made up of an actor and a costume and a piece of scenery and lighting and haze and sound and props and you know everything and then you are another layer within that as well so then that kind of gives you that sort of interesting depth
0: i think What was quite fun about the show is that there are some scenes which are really bedded in reality and seem really real, and there are other scenes which are set in the world of Doc, um, which are completely zany and on the verge of hallucinogenic. Um, What was your inspiration behind the design of these scenes?
1: Well, I mean, I think firstly, video is always like really fun when you go inside a character's head because you can sort of you can transform this world that you thought you understood, and you know, Doc is. Operates on the kind of, I mean, Doc has really has his energy turned all the way up to eleven. So, and and, you know, the way he thinks is so abstract; it's the kind of perfect license to go into pure abstraction. Um, And I mean, there's two particular numbers in the show that kind of live within Doc's head, and one is in 1985, and one is in 1955. And um, you know, I mean, there are very subtle references to all sorts of different sci-fi. Largely kind of as Easter eggs buried within the film and within our script and all that sort of stuff. So sort of sci-fi seemed like one way into it. So looking at for the nineteen eighties, kind of where sci-fi was stylistically in nineteen eighty-five, which sort of inspires one number in act one, which is all very kind of um sort of retro wave futurism sort of fun and then once you get back into the 1950s it's much more of a imagining of a kind of brave and perfect world in the future of you know flying cars and losing weight while you watch tv and you know machines kind of doing everything for us uh so those were the sort of two keys into those worlds one was a very kind of sharp crisp kind of chromey kind of world of uh siphoning the other was much more kind of Cheap comic book uh, things with kind of you know gorgeous uh, sort of 1950s kind of gouache illustration. With, you know there's really kind of solid, bold colors. Um, that that was a kind of jumping off point for sort of finding what to do with those kind of bonkers songs.
0: So did you have to do a lot of um, research or to find these references or Easter eggs that the writers had hidden within the script?
1: I mean, it's sort of a bit of both. I mean, it's it's quite hard to be a kid of the 80s and not have seen Back to the Future unless you're sort of living under a stone or something. But, um, you know, I did, you know, having that job was the perfect license to kind of sit down one afternoon and get paid effectively to watch Back to the Future, which is sort of quite a nice, <laughs> nice thing <laughs> when you think about it. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, through trolling through kind of the internet and then speaking to various people on the show and asking a few questions of the writers and all that kind of stuff, that kind of, Really unlocked, and you know Bob Gale is a massive 1950s sci-fi uh, fan and has an encyclopedic knowledge of that kind of stuff. So he was a very useful source of information for all of that. So um, it was uh, a real pleasure to to dig into that stuff because visually it's so rich, and also the 80s stuff it's so tacky as well. Like there's something kind of fabulously naff about that mid 80s uh, period from where we sit now uh, but, you know, looking at it, just remembering, like my mum having those hairdos and things like that, and
0: the wigs in this show are fantastic.
1: <laughs> they, they are showing <laughs> themselves.
0: So the real star of the show for me, other than the wigs, um, was the time traveling moment. And wow, you really, you really nailed it. Can you explain how you achieved the illusion of traveling at eighty eight miles per hour in bad weather and into the time space continuum?
1: Um, well, I think we. It developed over a very long time uh, i would not say there was a kind of like Doc falling off the toilet and having a light bulb moment um it was a sort of slow progressive thing like we knew we had a car we knew we had an led wall the other element in the show is a uh front projected gauze which um i kind of felt would probably factor into that so I mean, first of all, it was about engaging with automation and looking at how they were working, how the car could move. And, you know, it's, it's a sort of terrifyingly complicated thing because it can rotate on its own axis, but it's also on the surface that can rotate. And then within that, it can tilt and it can move up and down. And, it, you know, it can move in the kind of any kind of way to kind of make engaging with the automation of that vehicle an enormous headache for a person who has to write maths to do that. Um, but that aside, I think we felt what we needed to do was stick an LED wall in a room stick some projection in there, and then have a play around for a couple of days. Prior to doing that, we built a very kind of low-poly, rough hill valley, uh, you know, stuck it out in 3D, sort of, and made it very clear to everyone, this is not an aesthetic proposition. This is simply like working out mechanics of things. And then um, we didn't have the automated car at this point. We had a a wooden cutout car on wheels and a bunch of students uh, to push it around. And uh, then we shoved all of this into notch and use that as a very kind of primitive way of like working out well if we turn a corner what's the most sort of sexy way to turn a corner which plane is the car most interesting in its travel like does it work diagonally is it interesting if it's just going away from us then what happens if we add front projection into that how do we kind of create that depth is it useful seeing the floor is it not useful seeing the floor you know like um, standing up a ladder to kind of try and get a view from the circle, sort of thing. We did all this in um, production park in Wimbledon, uh, sort of thing. So it was, and then we're like, oh, this car needs to be silver. So someone went to home base and bought some silver paint. Like it was pretty kind of it was high high fi, low fi, <laughs> um, if you know what I mean. So we spent a lot of time working on that out. But what was great was because we had all this in Notch, we didn't need to kind of render anything. We just could uh, expose various camera parameters and effectively drive the camera around this three D world. Um, which made building the sequence like quite instantaneous as opposed to, you know, like a kind of labored thing of, uh, of render, you know, uh, transfer content, reprogram, blah, 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 blah. You know, for me, it was quite exciting because it was like we could actually work as quickly as the lighting designer could and we could kind of make things move around and we could kind of really get a sense of how that travel could play. And then we were also lucky enough that in order to commission the automation, what they thought was the best thing to do was actually build the deck and the car and everything in um, another drafty cold warehouse in December this time. So that gave us another opportunity to look at how things had evolved aesthetically. Um, it also brought us to the point of having to really decide, are we going to do this town hall thing as a piece of generative content in Notch, or are we going to render stuff out of Notch um, sort of thing? Because I think that really showed us where things were working well and where things weren't working well and identified what our path was. So we sort of sat on that over Christmas. And then after Christmas, we decided we weren't actually going to interpret automation data uh, and then try and translate that into things because it was just... The time to actually do all that commissioning didn 't exist, so the easier thing to do would be to actually render it out of notch, which also meant we could switch on a hell of a load more nodes and make it look even more beautiful because you know um, I think what we certainly are learning is you know either do it as a block in notch or render it in notch uh, you know there 's lots of things you have to take into consideration at that point, and sometimes doing it as a block isn 't actually always the best solution, but because you can make it look 10 times prettier because you're not dealing with what a GX2, GX2C, whatever, Hypotizer or or anything else, can actually render live. You can render it in your own time, albeit 10 times faster than you have good in After Effects or via Render Farm, whatever. Um, So you're still kind of getting all that kind of gorgeous GPU fun, um, but you're not having to kind of pay the price by compromising your look on stage. So that December workshop led us to going well, actually we've set what these car moves are now, so now we know what this automation is. We can now kind of go and animate something really nuanced and beautiful to that um because then we don't have to deal with limits of media servers we don't have to deal with automation occasionally sending out bizarre data it was It was sad to have to do that, but also sort of beneficial because we got a much sort of tighter look out of it in the end, and it was still we could drive around in real time within notch like on our editor machines and make something that if we'd previously tried to do that in cinema 4d and render farms we would have just been going insane
0: and did you find uh did you use any ray tracing or path tracing with these rendered scenes
1: uh yeah particularly um in act one there's a very shiny shiny scene which is all about reflections and all that kind of stuff so um that is all path tracing, ray tracing, sort of fantasticness, which, you know, again, to try and render something like that in what we now refer to as the old days um, would have just been sort of horrific, you know. Whereas, you know, these sort of little kind of things render out 10 times fast, I mean, so much quicker. It's sort of, you know, dark magic.
0: During the production, did anything get heavy?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the, the car certainly got heavy because there was all that work we did in our December workshop, you know, when we actually put it on stage in front of an audience and everything, we realized we did need to tighten up and change things. Um, So it was definitely, you know, once we actually looked at the thing, we're like, God, this is a bit long. And, you know, working out what to cut, what to tighten up, what to improve, where to take time off. um, That was quite challenging to say the least. But also it weirdly wasn't scary because we knew that we could turn around content really quickly. So any changes made to car-based automation sequences like actually keeping up and responding to them wasn't hard so that sort of wasn't too much of a challenge i think because it just kept us kind of clipping along at quite a nice pace and you know i think an important thing to note like for us on back to the future when we we would we did it very much as like a sort of notch experiment uh where we said to ourselves at the very beginning on this show, we are going to try everything and start start it in notch, not go to After Effects, not kind of um, resort to, you know, the old ways. We said to ourselves, we're using Notch for these making these blocks. We're using Notch for these 3D scenes. Like, let's use Notch for the 2D scenes or the kind of compositing artwork and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that was an interesting, it was a big learning curve for the studio, but a necessarily good one to go on. But it also meant turning around content was quick. Um, There was much, like the renders, we had a render farm, which we barely used because we didn't need to use it because everything was coming out in real time or as close to real time as it can do. Um, so, you know, where heaviness maybe would have happened in the past, we were mercifully spared it um, in the future. Uh, that was okay. I mean, I think the heaviness really is um, the fact that the show is not going to be able to complete its run. Like we were exceptionally lucky that we got to our opening night, um, you know, five days before the theaters were closed and, You know, there is friends I have, you know, in Britain and America whose shows either didn't make their opening nights or the shutdown happened on the day of their opening nights or the shows are waiting to open. And, you know, I just think we are very, very lucky that we got all that work done um, and didn't have to stop it Uh, because once you get that momentum going, it would be just so horrible to have to stop it and so sad for everyone who's put so much into it for so long.
0: I mean, that's the, that was the last theater show I, I, I saw. Um, so I was really Not glad to have, yeah, I'm really glad it was, it was yours. Um, Because, you know, it was real high to um, start my isolation on. Um, (laughs) um, But but at the end of the show, you know, there was a standing ovation. You know, it just makes me think how rewarding it must feel to get that instantaneous feedback from people watching video that you've created, essentially. Because a lot of video now, especially now, is viewed online and asynchronously, whereas you know working in the live space and with live audiences you get that instant feedback and it must feel quite rewarding when you're when you're there
1: yeah i mean absolutely i think the audience is very much who i do this for and who you know i i love kind of crafting a scene to elicit that response because there's definitely a sort of an approach uh one takes to kind of really get people that hyped up and um you know there's a rather brilliant um theater director called simon bernie who once said to me you know they judge you on your dismount um so it's really for me it's all about how you kind of close in on those final 20 minutes to sort of you know build and build and build and build because that's what people go away thinking about and that's what people uh sustain in their memory and their experience of the show and you know i mean also you're working with something like back to the future is such a gift because people come with such a love for it already and that doesn't mean you're guaranteed that kind of response because if you screw it up they will let you know uh big time so you know you have you have quite a kind of duty of care with something like that to deliver something that is true to everyone who has their kind of love or connection of it because certainly with this and other sort of things I've worked on that are being kind of lifted from other popular genres you know people really come expecting some sort of almost spiritual experience from it um, because it sort of means so much to them for whatever reason so it's sort of it's really nice to know you've done your job well when they have that kind of response.
0: Do you think that's the same kind of um, feeling in theatre shows and in live music concerts or is there a slight difference between these types of shows?
1: You know, I think that's actually one of the areas where there is quite a big crossover because certainly, like with some bands, people go to it for like a full night or a full experience because you know if especially if the band's been around for a while, like they may have like been with them for their entire life like there's a German rock band we do some work with called Die Toten Hose, you know they're they are as old as I am, you know they're like people bring their whole families to our shows, you know they may well have conceived their children while listening to our <laughs> music. <you know. laughs> Uh, so, you know, they, we owe it to them to provide this sort of, you know, communal, special experience that you can only get by being a room full of, you know, 2,000, 10,000, 20,000 other people all united behind the same thing. You know, that's a kind of, it's a really rare thing. You know, I mean, it's, and it's nice because people are united together in something happy and something positive, uh, which, you know, feels like a fairly distant thing, um, present time.
0: And do you think the demand for video effects or video elements within theatrical shows is growing?
1: Yes, I think. Like, this is a question I definitely get asked a a fair bit, and I think I've been doing this for fifteen years now. And You know, we've always been busy and there's, there's more and more young people coming up wishing to kind of work in this field, more younger designers out there. And as technology goes, um, as people's understanding of it grow, then the medium will grow. I mean, if you think about theater, 15 20 years ago moving lights weren't making up every single rig you know or you know complex dynamic 3d sound wasn't part of things or automation wasn't such a thing you know like theater's like this kind of weird glorious bastard that sort of just gathers everything around it into one massive soup of stuff and sort of spits out to the other end sort of a brilliant show like we're, we're very good at sort of picking up on other things and making them our own. So I think we're here to stay. Um, I mean, obviously we're not part of every single show because every single show doesn't have the need for what we do. But I think compared to where we were sort of 15 years ago, we are much more present and certain mediums have really adopted us. Like um, opera loves a bit of video and video works really well in opera and uh, musical theater too. I think, you know, and I think that video connects very well with music because it's about sort of visually expressing whatever, is being kind of sung and played. And I think we find a very sort of natural place together there.
0: And what advice would you give to someone who's looking to get into video design for theatre production?
1: Um, Well, I think you don't have to be the world's greatest animator in order to be a video designer. Like I'd happily admit that I'm not the world's greatest sort of content creator, but I work with teams of people who are, Um, but I think it's, you know, be honest in your ideas and sort of have good, strong ideas that tell the story of the show and, you know, steer away from a gimmick um, and, you know, kind of understand what others around you are doing and um, respect that. And then I think together you'll make your work great.
0: So then I think that's about a wrap now. So thanks so much for taking the time out to have a chat with me today. Um, it's pleasure. been really great getting behind the scenes access, the backstage pass into Back to the Future, the musical. Um, and yeah, I've learned a lot. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Um, been nice talking with you.
0: for listening to today's episode, you can check out Frey's work by heading over to their website, freystudio.co.uk, or by following them on Instagram, frey underscore studio, or on Facebook at Video. If you're interested in using your computing power for scientific research, then head over to foldingathome.org, where you can join the Notch team by entering team code 239430. And let us know what you thought of today's episode over Twitter at NotchVFX. Next week, I'm speaking with Spencer Heron of Rebel Overlay. Spencer shares his journey from VJing his mates gigs at uni to creating visuals for the world's largest dance venues. Join us as we go behind the scenes at Printworks. Catch
1: you there.